Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Shebrews. It feels great to be here tonight. Another Sabbath come to an end, and uh, I love seeing you guys. Thank you guys for coming back, and uh, it's great to see old faces, new faces. I don't have to <laughs> sit here and talk to myself, and um, you know, as always, be sure to take notes and you know questions you have or comments, concerns, um, added observations that I may have missed, and we could discuss them later tonight. We are on the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, according to the Torah. And you're not supposed to start Bible studies this way, but I will confess that this is kicking my butt. And, you know, I decided to go with Paul's magnum opus. I, I really felt the need to have, have this under my belt, you know, going forward as a ministry to have this uh, commentary written. And I went with probably the hardest of, definitely the most meaty uh, of all of his uh, letters. And uh, chapter six, particularly, uh, I, I've been trying to do one chapter per week, and chapter six is going to be divided into two weeks. I came up with so much material for this chapter. I don't know why this chapter, not the others, but I came up with so much material. I went on some fun rants. Hopefully you guys will enjoy this tonight. Let's go ahead and get started. But before we do, if I can ask somebody to volunteer to pray, because I'm going to be talking all night and I need the prayer. So uh, anybody in particular, don't all run up at once. Well, if nobody's going to do it, I will. Thank you, Andrew. Dear Heavenly Father, Yahweh Elohim. Thank you for bringing us all together on this Shabbat. Um, thank you for giving us this, this time set aside to learn about your way and your truth. And, um, we thank you for everything that you've provided for us on this earth and uh, in our lives. We thank you. Thank you for sending your son, uh, Yahushua HaMashiach, sacrifice for our sins, and uh, thank you for your Ruach HaKadosh and everything that she We love you, Yahuwah Elohim, and Yahushua HaMashiach's name, pray. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. So if you go to the, I dropped the PDF in here, and if you go to the contents page, which is on page five, you will see chapter one, chapter two, three, four, five, six. Of course, you can see six is the last written. We are on chapter six this week. I am going to be cutting this into two separate weeks, and I'm going to hopefully find that spot, the cutoff, this week, and I don't keep rambling on. And actually, the, the chapter is divided into two. It, it really worked itself out well. We're halfway in the chapter. It, it goes off to a different subject. So with that, you can just click on to chapter six in the PDF, and it'll send you right to page 129 if you don't want to scroll there. And I just realized this, I'm supposed to read from the chapter. So one of the great things about this recording is that I can edit out the pause that's about to happen as I find it. So give me about 10 seconds and I will pull up chapter six. What's great about the Sefer Bible, I'm reading straight from the, the Sefer, is that there's so many added books in here that like Paul's letters are even further towards the end of the Bible. Like you have this huge chunk of scripture and then you have the epistles at the very end, uh, further inciting 
somebody's uh if someone's just going to read paul's epistles and base their whole life on that that they're getting the tip of the iceberg all right so here we go this is chapter six of romans what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound never how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein know ye not that so many of us were baptized into yahushua hamashiach were baptized into his death Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Mashiach was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that our body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Mashiach, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Mashiach being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died into sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto Elohim. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto Elohim through Yahushua HaMashiach or Adonai. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto Elohim as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto Elohim. For sin does not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Never. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But Elohim be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to lawless deeds and to lawless deeds, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness and to holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness." What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are, ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to Elohim, ye have your fruits unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of Elohim is eternal life through Yahushua HaMashiach, our Adonai. All right, so let's get started, and I'll be reading verse-by-verse verse commentary, as I've been doing each and every week. And we have in Romans 6.1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh-oh, it is happening again. Paul is leading us towards lawlessness in the form of a question, isn't he? Only one verse ago, he was explaining how offenses abound whenever the Torah confronts us. And so apparently, rebellion is now a good thing. That is what I am so often told by far too many Christians. We apparently live in an age of grace which entitles us to decide which commands we should guard or not guard on the basis that our culture deems some of them too anthropological. 
but also, did God really say, their words, not mine? Always keeping us on the edge of our seats, Paul is. If I had to take a crack at it, Paul is introducing a false premise. He is telling us what not to think. All the same, he has delivered a question, a question demanding an answer from our heart's desire. And you know how that goes. We will have to keep reading to see if my hunch is accurate then. Verse 2. Never. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The answer is a resounding never. My thoughts exactly. Some translations will even read, may it never be, which is Paul's way of assuring everyone that you would have to be delusional to suggest a doctrine which states it is perfectly permissible to pursue lawlessness. I wish I could sit here and tell you the bulk of humanity reads Paul's never for what it truly is, that we are to conform to the Torah rather than rebel against it. But the complete opposite has proven to be the case. Many Christians will claim it is strictly impossible to sin once we have been saved by grace, and that is somehow what Paul is hinting at. I kid you not. Such conclusions are ranked among the most perverted thing I've ever heard. And yet the doctrine is served on a trash can lid all the time, as if the smelling, rotting corpse of Antichrist thinking were a delectable meal. How that works itself out, that one person can steal, murder, slander, have sex with another man's wife, molest children, or sacrifice their baby to Moloch and be condemned for it, while another man is free to perform the same deeds because of Jesus and being dead to sin or whatever, is apparently beyond my pay grade. And might I suggest a shrink issue, as such worldviews have no bearings on reality whatsoever. Certainly, anyone who is speaking on behalf of the Ruach HaKodesh will agree with Paul's conclusions, that we are never to continue in our sins, being dead to that way of thinking and all. There is no such instance when transgressing the Torah is permissible. We have been given the Ruach HaKodesh, have we not? The Ruach's purpose has already been described for us in Ezekiel 36. And that was reviewed from last week's. So quote from that passage again, And I will put my Ruach within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall guard my judgments and do them. Rather difficult arguing around that one. Why would the Ruach be given to some to cause them to guard Yahuwah's commands, but to others so that they wouldn't have to? Such a shame that Adam and Hava weren't included in that second category, I guess. It never turned out all right for anyone in the Bible who openly rebelled, or privately for that matter. But I'm sure it will turn out different for everyone else who claims Paul has written a letter to free them. Verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Yahushua HaMashiach, were baptized into his death? Ah, uh, now we know what Paul was getting at when putting forward his position that we are dead to sin. He is directing his reader to the spiritual reality behind the mikvah. What is the mikvah? I'm glad you asked. The mikvah was and still is a bath used for the purpose of ritual immersion. The aim is to achieve ritual purity. Today, Christians know the practice only as Paul describes it here. Baptism, however, is not dissimilar from the ongoing ritualistic washing intended for holy living that we find in the Torah. You see, after so many consecutive years of cyclically reading the books of Moshe, I started noticing something. A Torah-pursuant individual, uh, such as constantly fluct 
I don't know why I wrote, let me read that again. A Torah pursuing individual is constantly fluctuating between a clean and unclean existence. On any given day, all sorts of personal actions or circumstances beyond myself might designate me as unclean. For example, if I have secreted seed during intercourse, then I am unclean. Actually, that wouldn't be a circumstance beyond my, <laughs> that would be <laughs> by my choice, but you guys see what I mean. There is, however, a remedy for that. Washing. Do you see where I'm going with this? Probably. Let's see what Torah has to say on the matter anyways. This comes from Leviticus chapter 15. And if any man's seed of copulation go out from him, then he shall wash all his flesh in water and be unclean until the even. And every garment and every skin whereon is the seed of copulation shall be washed with water and be unclean until the even. The woman also with whom man shall lie with seed of copulation, they shall both bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the even. Perhaps I am simply slow, as it took me several periodic readings to undress, what, <laughs> to undress what the text is ultimately getting at here. I don't know if that was a conscious decision to write that. Do you see it? Sure, I highlighted the prescription for you. That is, the unclean person shall wash himself with water. But do you really see it? Perhaps not. Let's keep hacking away at Leviticus then, because I'm not ready to tell you what it is quite yet. The same text continues on, turning its attention from men and then men and women, as we have just seen, to simply women, specifically menstruating women. And if a woman have an issue and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days. And whosoever touches her shall be unclean until the even. And everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. Everything also that she sits upon shall be unclean. And whosoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And whosoever touches anything that she sat upon shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And if it be on her bed or on anything whereon she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the even. Seems pretty straightforward. And if any man lie with her at all and her flowers be upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And all the bed whereon he lies shall be unclean. Leviticus 15, 19 through 24. The hope, of course, is to be clean, as no unclean person can enter the tabernacle or the temple, where the presence of Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, resides. More than anything, I want you to carry that visual. A man who has secreted, or a woman who has been secreted with, a menstruating woman, or the man who has touched the bed of a menstruating woman, may not enter the presence of the Most High Elohim. Before the sun goes down, his or her or their prescription is to wash their clothes and bathe themselves in water. I could go on with more examples, but the point has been made. Holy living insists upon the pursuit of cleanliness, bathing. That is not to say that being unclean is a sin. Sex and marriage isn't a sin. Menstruation isn't a sin. Having children isn't a sin, which that... I could give examples on how that makes a woman unclean, having a child, a, a boy, uh, seven days, a girl, 14 days. There are some actions which result in uncleanness and certainly are a sin, such as eating unclean animals or taking part in abominations. Applicable to this discussion, therefore, is being obstinately unclean. Don't do that. If we purposely pitch a fork into the pork and then raise it to our mouths, we intend to become unclean by way of abomination. 
Indeed, in the same manner, refusing to wash one's garments or flesh may very well be a transgression of the Torah. Where is the set-apart living in that? Before you attempt to disfigure precisely what I'm getting at, allow me to give the short of my conclusion. The regimented routine of bathing is a ritual reserved not simply for holy living, but for a kingdom of priests. Think about that long and hard. Let the thought marinate. Priest, the kingdom of heaven, heavenly priest. And just so we're clear, what we have just read isn't addressing the Levites. Yahuwah wants his people, the sons and daughters of Yasharel, to be a clean people, a kingdom of priests. I now realize that I've taken up three pages, and this really should be an article all its own. But we're going to trudge on in favor of the history of baptism because somewhere along the way, Christianity decided to ditch circumcision and baptism in favor only of baptism. If we're being technical and straight to the point, the old-time religion forsook clean, set-apart living as a whole, as the scripture provided has already exhibited. Eventually, baptism was diminished, like circumcision, even discarded to the newfound importance of the altar call. You may have heard of the altar call before. The act involves a uh, persuasive sermon and a follow-up prayer akin to, quote-unquote, inviting Jesus into your hearts, whereas baptism is optional. I'm here to tell you that I've scoured the ancient pages, and so far, the invitation prayer cannot be found anywhere. Becoming a Hebrew by way of baptism is nothing new. Someone will be tempted to tell me it all began with Yochanan the Baptizer, or John the Baptist, and is therefore a Christian doctrine. If so, then that person is wrong. Becoming a child of Yasharel has always begun with baptism, and I aim to show that to be the case. I figure Yahusha's Great Commission is a, as good a place as any to start this present investigation. Perhaps we will notice something new, which I actually did. So let's have a go at it. So I give I gave two here. Uh, you can see the the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew. I'll just read straight from the the Matthew from the Greek. And Yahushua came and spoke unto them, saying, "All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach Hakodesh, teaching them to guard all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen." And then I'll just uh, read from the, the yellow part in the Hebrew. It says the same thing uh, pretty much. Therefore, go preach to all the peoples and immerse them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach HaKadosh and teach them all that I commanded you. I noticed something new, did you? Well, I did. Yahushua placed baptism on equal ground with teaching and preaching to all nations. Some versions prefer the phrase, make disciples. Must be important then. But then notice what I marked in red. When was the last time that you have heard the part where Yahushua says, teaching them to guard all things whatsoever I have commanded you? Pastors drop that phrase like a bad habit. Or they just skim right over the fine print, hoping it might go unnoticed. And to be fair to Paul's argument, notice how Yahushua never says we are to go about circumcising all nations. No, he says to baptize. The why behind such a statement is important. It is the Ruach HaKadosh who makes it possible to obey Yahuwah's commands afterwards, as we have already seen. Circumcision will be pursued in time, but the order is never to be reversed. Telling his Talmudim that they were to go out and circumcise the nations would be the sort of commission put forward by the Yahudim, I suppose, but not Yahusha. 
Perhaps the decision of the Yerushalayim Council can be better understood in light of Yehusha's commission as well. Messiah had already settled the debate on the order of things. Yaakov, in Acts 15, was simply there to help clarify. I'll say this again, something else entirely is being advocated in Yehusha's commission, and it is the Torah. Don't believe me? Yehusha's instruction, well, <laughs> hopefully after like reading over 100 pages in your, you will, but you figure people will skip ahead in the book. Uh, Yehusha instructs his Talmudim to teach them the nations uh, all, all that he had already commanded. You have to go back further in the Gospels to discover where his teachings originated. So we see here in the Hebrew Gospel of John, chapter 7, it says, Yeshua answered and said, My teaching is not mine, but it is from him who sent me. If any man desires to do the desire of El, that would be God or Elohim, he will recognize the teaching, whether it is from El or if his word is from himself. Ouch. We have before us another one of those passages where it's awfully difficult not to take a highlighter out to the whole thing. Simple deduction should inform us that going out into the world and teaching or preaching to all people needs to line up with Elohim's teachings. Uh-oh, that would be found in the quote-unquote Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible. It's more like three, well, yeah, it's more like 90% in the Sefer. That would be... Well, let me rephrase that again. That would be found in the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible, as not even Yahusha's teachings are his own. You see, nothing new. The Most High Elohim would have to be bipolar to teach one doctrine and then change his mind and teach another. But that is what we are expected to believe. Yahusha furthermore states that such an individual, the person who obeys Yahuwah's Torah and teaches others to do the same, will recognize the son of Elohim's teachings as the same. Hmm, a clue. Messiah would have to be a bad son indeed to go about destroying his father's work. Wouldn't you agree? It just goes to show Christianity is so far removed from the teachings of Yahusha that they might as well do everyone a favor and refer to themselves as anti-Christian, given their penchant for lawlessness. Being lawless simply implies having no law or no longer feeling obliged to obey it via age of grace or whatever. Kind of like the man of lawlessness. I'm sure he's abounding in grace. And then we see here the Hebrew gospel of Marcus. And he said to them, go into all the world, preach the word of the king of the heavens to every creation. He who believes and is dipped, he will be saved. But he who does not will be destroyed. And here is the great commission presented to us from the perspective of the Hebrew gospel of Mark. Seems rather important, no? It says those who do not meaning those who fail to be baptized for lack of belief, will be destroyed. If this describes you, if you have yet to be baptized, then please do yourself a favor and seek someone out to baptize you today or as soon as possible. Don't put it off. Your level of belief in the kingdom, which includes the destruction of the disobedient, will dictate your actions. You can convince yourself and everybody around you that you believe, but does Yah know that? Actions speak louder than words. And no, Yahushua's disciples were not ordained ministers of the local denomination, nor were they seminary students. We are dealing with the Great Commission, and Yahushua has just deputized all of his followers. If you are baptized and obedient to his commands, then you too are deputized, become a baptizer today. The point that I have so far been trying to make is that belief in Yahushua and the teachings of Yahushua 
which derive from our Heavenly Father, are synonymous with baptism. Paul infers the same thing when stating, so many of us as were baptized. Well, here's a, a compatible example from an entire group of early followers. This comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. But when they believed, Philip preaching the, the things concerning the kingdom of Elohim and the name of Yahushua HaMashiach, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Shimon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. In conclusion, believers believed and were baptized, just like that. No excuses, ifs, ands, or bottoms. This wasn't a non-committal relationship. They didn't get to know Yahusha over several months or years even before finally agreeing to hand over the keys to their apartment. This wasn't a marriage with a five-year honeymoon before they were ready for children. Baptism was an immediate response to their coming to faith. A dozen or so verses down, and we already read of another baptismal account. I'm showing it, but only because there's something I want you to notice. And this again comes from Acts chapter 8, so same chapter. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Yahusha. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Yahushua HaMashiach is the son of Elohim. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. What would have happened had the eunuch not said anything? For one, we are given no indication that Philip would have stopped the chariot and begged him to be baptized. It, wasn't, it was all the eunuch's doing. He saw his opportune moment and didn't let him pass him by. It says he declared his belief that Yehusha HaMashiach was the son of Elohim, presumably with all his heart. And then, as a result of his declaration, he was dipped. And so again, find a pool of water, immerse yourself, man, and dunk. Yochanan the baptizer was going about the plains of the yard and baptizing in preparation for the coming kingdom. This involves repentance, obviously, as baptism without repentance is pointless. We read as much in uh, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, Yochanan the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Yehud and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Can't say repentance has nothing to do with it then. But there's more to the kingdom than that. In a little while, we shall see why someone like Herod would despise Yochanan the Dipper of Souls. Here's a hint, though. He was deputizing everybody. Yochanan was baptizing for the repentance of sins. And this comes from a quote from Josephus, War of the Jews, and this is what he has to say. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God as a just punishment of what Herod had done against John, who was called the Baptist. Herod had killed this good man who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. If you notice, I'm not saying Elohim here. Uh, I don't think he wrote in Hebrew, and I'm not trying to make this politically correct. For only thus, in John's opinion, with the baptism he administered be accepted to God, namely, if they used it to obtain not pardon for some sins, but rather the cleansing of their bodies, inasmuch as it was taken for granted that their souls had already been purified by justice. Now, many people came in crowds to him, for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared that the great influence John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best to put him to death. In this way, 
he might prevent any mischief John might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. Just so you know, that's not exactly why I believe Herod hated Yochanan the Baptist. Not because of a physical rebellion, that is. Sure, Herod had no desire to repent, no debate there. Moral pressure to conform certainly wasn't coming from elsewhere, as the priesthood was mostly bought and paid for. What Yochanan was ultimately doing, though, was creating another sort of rebellion, a militant group not of this world, a Meshulzadek army. Before this is over, you'll hopefully know what I mean by that. Baptism, you see, can be traced back to and through the order of the ancients. That would be the Meshulzadek priesthood. The, the following passage is ascribed to Eliyahu the prophet, and FYI, Eliyahu was a Meshulzadek. When such a man comes forward to present himself as a candidate for admission into the order, that would be the order of the Meshulzadek priesthood, he should be examined carefully by the elders of the community, and having been proven worthy, he must enter into a covenant in the presence of Elohim, the holy messengers and his brethren of the order, by entering into the waters of purification. So there it is. That he will do according to all that Elohim has commanded and not turn away from the service of Yahuwah through fear of wicked men or devils, nor through discouragement because of the trials which Belial shall send against him. For Yahuwah Elohim has appointed that all who seek to live after his holy order shall be tried and purified until their gold is pure and their dross, their dross consumed. When a man has entered into the covenant in the waters of purification, the elders of the community are to lay their hands upon his head and bless him. Book of the Order of the Ancients, chapter 4. Understand what is being spoken here. According to Eliyahu the prophet, a person cannot enter into a covenant with Elohim, and certainly not into the brotherhood, unless he is first dipped. You will tell me that the Meshachedeks are being referred to, and you are not one of them. Well, what order does our high priest stem from then? Exactly. Yahusha is a Meshachedek. That should then beg the question, why are so many souls inhabiting the congregation trying to convince us of their genuine intentions when in fact they have yet to commit to the faith, let alone believe? Baptism isn't simply symbolic. It's a do or die. It's an enter the camp or remain in the outer darkness invitation. And that's coming from Yahusha's words. We have probably all been told it's an outward action to an inward act and that God knows our heart. But as we shall come to find, it's only so symbolic as washing off the stink from your own flesh or in specific kingdom terms, dying with Messiah and rising from the grave. I can feel it. Right this very moment, somebody is protesting on the basis that they have just now combed the table of conscience in their King James 66-foot canon and cannot find the order of the ancients anywhere. Must be heretical then. Fine. Let's just return to another trusted source, which I have spoken of earlier, just to verify the practice of something older than your canon. This comes from Ezekiel. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new ruach will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my ruach within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Water, check. Repentance, check. The gifted Ruach, check. Sounds like a baptism event to me. I've already mentioned the part where it says that his Ruach is put within you to, quote, cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them, unquote. Hmm. Pastors always like to leave that part out. How does it go again? 
I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me, except Torah. That's works-based. Definitely can't do that. We've got grace now. Yeah, that translation isn't in my Bible either. Still, I am surrounded by argumentative people all the time, and so some will argue for the sake of arguing that uh, Ezekiel is simply prophesying of the future time when Yahuwah will finally enact baptismal rites. Well, since I've already thought to bring up Josephus, we might as well have another go at it. The same historian traces baptism even further back than Eliyahu. Let's see how far back he goes. This comes from Legends, uh, Legends of the Jews. No, <laughs> that's a misprint. It's not Legends of the Jews. It would be War of the Jews. Getting my books confused. But anyways, I'll have to fix that. But here's what he says. Just as one who is to be admitted to Judaism must first submit to the three ceremonies of circumcision, baptism, and sacrifice, so Israel did not receive the Torah until they had performed these three. Baptism was imposed on them two days before the revelation on Mount Sinai. There it is again, circumcision. Josephus was, after all, a member of the Parashim, the Pharisees. What he is saying is that one could not cross over into the Hebrew faith unless they were first baptized and circumcised. These were the very party members who were handing Paul down. And why is that? Because what he was advocating was an admittance into the Hebrew faith through baptism, but not circumcision. That's what Paul was advocating, which means he at least partially agreed with them. So Josephus would partially agree with Paul, uh, just not all of it. We have gone over this issue repeatedly. It's just that now we have confirmation from Josephus. I will remind you then that the parishine would have no issue with Paul if he were setting circumcision aside for entry into another covenant altogether. No, he was bringing the nation into the nations into Yahuwah's covenant. That's why they had a problem with them. Also, Josephus was only presenting one side of the argument, the winning side of the argument. Even after the temple was destroyed and sacrifice was removed from the table, Jewish rabbi Eliezer ben um, Harkanus was still advocating that a proselyte need only to submit to one of the two remaining requirements to gain admission into the faith, circumcision or baptism. Okay, so what, what this guy, this, this rabbi Eliezer was saying was that uh, you could choose. You want to come into the, Jew, uh, the Jewish faith, you could be circumcised as an adult. If you didn't want to be circumcised as an adult um, to enter, we could, we could deal with that later on down the road. You just need to be baptized. Just dip the guy in the water. He's repented of his sins. He's good to go. That's exactly what Paul was advocating. So he was actually advocating some things that some of the Jews were also advocating at that time. Okay, that tells us that the debate was raging even within the perishing circles and not just with Paul. Let us not neglect the fact that the perishim, as well as the um, Sadokim, those would be the Sadducees, were visiting Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, and we are never given an example wherein they outright rejected baptism. They were actually for it. In fact, those who ascribe to uh, Hyrcanus's school of thought would have most likely agreed with Yahushua's great commission in so much that only baptism was required. And remember now, so Yahushua is the one that's saying it. Uh, when, when, so when Paul is saying that you do not have to be circumcised into the faith, that will, you know, as, as, as uh, Yaakov says in Acts 15, that's, that'll come in time. Give him time. You know, the Holy Spirit will move him in that direction. That comes straight from Yahushua. Our Joshua ben uh, Hananiah is said to have closed the book on that debate. So he was another rabbi 
who was kind of around Paul's time. I think he came just afterwards, uh, the next century, according to the official narrative. The uh, Halakhic uh, ruling was decided in his favor, and both admissions were required. So because of this guy, uh, this rabbi, he comes along and says, nope, sorry, we are not going to allow people to come in and just be baptized. You've got to be circumcised and baptized. That's second century ruling. Before that, they were still allowing people to come in and just be baptized. Let's not get sidetracked. The point here is that a first century non-Messianic is saying baptism was universally practiced as a crossing over action into the house of Yehuda, aside from Yochanan and Yehusha's influences. Full immersion was used for the proselytes, or rather the goyim, to enter into covenant with Yahuwah and become part of the Yahudim. Baptism was actually the starting point. So to be clear, it wasn't simply Yochanan and Yehusha, uh, and in this case Paul as well, who were commanding baptism as an act of obedience. When it comes to baptism being imposed, Josephus seemingly gets one minute detail wrong but we'll give him a pass as he's only neglecting to mention the fact that baptism can be traced even further back than Sinai. We'll follow that breadcrumb trail in a moment. What baptism, is, um, what baptism is Josephus referring to? Perhaps he is directing us to the following events. And let's see where this is from. This is from Exodus chapter 19 for context. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Yasharel. And Moshe came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which Yahuwah commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahuwah has spoken we will do. And Moshe returned the words of the people to El Yahuwah. And Yahuwah said unto Moshe, Lo, I come unto you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. And Moshe told the words of the people unto El Yahuwah. And Yahuwah said unto Moshe, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day Yahuwah will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. The long-standing belief, at least in the Judaism of Josephus' time, as well as today, is that the children of Yasharel washed their clothes while they were still on. They basically, they entered a mikvah. Hopefully, the passage we started with in Leviticus 15 will ring a bell. A mikvah of some sort would have been required even in the wilderness. It's okay. You can say it. Baptism. Elsewhere, Paul refers seemingly to the mile marker in his, his story when writing. Uh, so this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moshe in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Mashiach. But with many of them, Elohim was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It took me so long, guys, to see that the, the rock actually followed them around. Uh, and I spoke on that, I think, a couple weeks ago with the, the Stone of Scone, that it, it can't possibly be a rock sitting in the wilderness because he says that it followed them around. Yashorel was baptized in the Red Sea, signifying their death in spiritual mitzrim and new life with Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim. For many, what follows immediately thereafter is the awkward part, the elephant in the room. They were baptized before being given the Torah. If anything, 
the new life they experienced in their ceremonial cleansing was expected to help them conform to the fates of the Torah. But as you can see, Elohim was not pleased with many of them. That's just another way of telling us what Paul has already stated in Romans chapter 5, verses 23 through 21, which we went over last time, the, the previous chapter. Many were not cut out to be covenant members, nor were they pleased with Yahuwah, and so rebelled against his commands. It just goes to show that baptism does not promise one salvation, whereas the crossing over necessary cannot be achieved without baptism. You see how that works? By now you should know I can only manage so many pages without claiming the Torah is much older than Sinai. It's just a matter of time. The Torah is eternal. You might very well say then that its beginnings can be found even before the foundations of the world. If the Torah predates Sinai, or at the very least, the Red Sea crossing, then one can only presume baptism does too. Let's comb the pages of scripture and find out. Oh, here we go. Already found it. Even Abraham baptized converts. But they didn't teach you that, or I bet they didn't teach you that in Sunday school, probably because you won't find it anywhere in canon. Yes, we are looking at pages outside of the leather binding that will make many feel uncomfortable. That is another hurdle altogether for many. Entertain me for the moment. Hold on to a loved one if need be, or just hold on to a loved one for this for the love of it. Because here we go. According to Pharaoh's request, I laid my hands upon him and prayed over him, and he and all the males of Egypt were healed. Which interesting that we're actually going to be going over this very chapter, uh, Genesis chapter twelve, uh, in our Targum study later tonight. When the king had been blessed, he was he was that he had recovered. He was that he had recovered. It's kind of an odd phrasing. And he praised Yahuwah for his recovery. Wherefore, I took him into the garden and baptized him in the name of Yahuwah and all his household with him. And when I had blessed him again, Sarah came before him and he knew that he had been healed for the Ruach of Elohim fell upon him with this testimony and the witness thereof was sure. Like Eliyahu, Abraham was a Meshelzedek, according to this book. I know it doesn't say that here. I am simply attempting to save paper. The point is being made that Abraham baptized Pharaoh while in Mitreen in Egypt. Really, I'm starting to sense a theme here. The Meshelzedeks took a liking to the dunk. And as you can see, the passage we just read comes from the writings of Abraham. Well, the same book has more to say on baptism. Hang with me because this is where it really gets good. Although I gave these ordinances in the beginning to Adam, Yet the sons of men have continually gone astray from my precepts and have not kept mine ordinances, which I gave unto their fathers. They have neglected the ordinance of baptism, which I commanded unto them in token of the burial of the natural man, and have ceased to receive the anointing, whereby they become kings and priests unto me. Yea, they have turned from my commandments and changed mine ordinances, and have replaced baptism with the washing of children, which they call baptism. It's interesting. Uh, Lutherans do that today in many denominations as well as Catholics. But behold, this is no baptism, for I will atone for the fall of Adam. Wherefore, little children are innocent until they reach the age of accountability. The writings of Abraham 110. The context before us is circumcision and specifically why Noah and Shem were told to instruct Abraham in the whole of Torah, save circumcision, so that Yahuwah could personally do it at a later hour. Apparently, even in ancient times, people were snubbing an eighth-day circumcision in favor of baptizing their infants. 
a naughty no-no. Baptism was always intended as a conscious decision by the individual who wanted to cleanse himself and invite the Ruach HaKodesh to lead him in obedience. The practice of immersion goes back, way back. It says Elohim gave these ordinances to Adam. It additionally says mankind neglected the ordinance of baptism, thereby ceasing to receive the anointing, quote, whereby they became kings and priests, unquote. Where have we seen that uh, tonight? Unto the Most High. And there it is again, the gospel of the kingdom. And where have we seen that before? Oh, I know, Egypt, uh, Exodus chapter 19. And he shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Yasharel. It makes me think that when the millennial kingdom happened and the people were rounded up, that they literally like crossed an ocean. They were like all baptized into their being kings and priests. Seems pretty straightforward. We cannot say we're modeled after Yahusha, our own king and high priest, unless we're first baptized. That is the only way that, that we ourselves can become a king and priest of the kingdom, according to all the scripture I've read. Perhaps now you can see what Yahusha meant when everybody else who denies baptism is ultimately destroyed. And again, those are Yahusha's words, not mine, in Mark. They have rejected the royal priesthood of which he himself is high priest. Before ending this discussion on baptism, I wanted to find the reference to Adam and Hava being baptized, as Abraham claims. I looked and I scoured the pages of scripture, and having finally found it, we shall attempt to close on that note. You see, Adam and Hava's baptism brings us around full circle into the embrace of eternity. And so this is from, I quote from this chapter so much, and my apologies, but it's, it's a great chapter. Uh, the first book of Adam and Eve, or Adam and Hava, chapter 1. Starting in verse 2, and to the north of the garden, there is a sea of water. And it helps to know, of course, that uh, the garden being referred to here is in heaven, in paradise. Clear and pure to the taste, unlike anything else, so that through the clearness thereof, one may look into the depths of the earth. That's an exciting thought, that you're, you're above the firmament. And we get darkness from our end, but from that end, it's clear, and you can look all the way down to the earth. And when a man washes himself in it, he becomes clean of the cleanness thereof and white of its whiteness, even if he were dark. And Elohim created that sea of his own good pleasure, for he knew what would come of the man he would make, that after he had left the garden on account of his transgression, men should be born into the earth. Among them are righteous ones who will die, whose souls Elohim would raise at the last day, when all of them will return to their flesh, bathe in the water of the sea, and repent of their sins. But when Elohim made Adam go out of the garden, he did not place him on the border of it northward. This was so that he and Eve would not be able to go near to the sea of water where they could wash themselves in it, be cleansed from their sins, erase the transgression they have committed, and be no longer reminded of it in the thought of their punishment. So the scene is paradise, as I've mentioned, in heaven. Any aficionado, I love that word, and I can never pronounce it right. It's such a fun word, aficionado. Of the 66-book canon should immediately recognize a second witness in the book of Revelation, which says in chapter 4, verse 6, and before the throne there was a sea of glass, crystal. Read a little further, and the, the sea of glass makes yet another appearance in chapter 15, verse 2. And it says, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over the, his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the kithara of Elohim. Fun fact, uh, kithara is a stringed musical instrument similar to a lyre. 
Does anybody know how to play one of those things? I sure don't. That's awkward. Guess I'm going to have to learn. A lot of us will have to. Reading further still. And he showed me a, uh, this comes to chapter 22. Oh, I knew that. I knew Pamela was listening. And she just said that she knows how to play it, which is so exciting. She'll have to play it for us sometime. Chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of Elohim and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bore twelve matters of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Baptism begins where it ends, or rather it ends where it first began, in heaven. Now we know why the former things will no longer be remembered. First Adam and Eve 1.5 fills in that missing detail. Our heavenly baptism will erase all memory of our earthly transgressions which is a nice thought. If you guys ever just think about the horrible things you've done, you know, you just, they get stuck in your head and you cringe over them. And maybe we have trouble forgiving ourselves. You know, Elohim forgives us, but we have trouble forgiving ourselves for the things we've done. And um, it's a wonderful thought that once and for all those terrible uh, transgressions will be erased. Each man's soul will be forever, will forever be cleansed. It will then truly be said that we are dead to sin once and for all, as the Torah is eternally written on our hearts. All right, then moving on to Romans 6.4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Mashiach was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Like Yahshua before, our covenant relationship with Yahuwah begins with baptism. That is, our joining Yahushua HaMashiach in his death. The domino effect couldn't be any more obvious. Yahushua did not remain dead. Therefore, in like manner, our union with the high priest in death um, also will, will, or will also result in resurrection. You will once again want to take note of Yashro's crossing of the Red Sea. Nothing that transpired resulted by their own power. Though they chose to take part in the mikvah ceremony, their salvation derived from Yahushua alone. Also, like the Passover event... No. Yes. Sorry, you're you're a little bit. You've been a little bit choppy for the last minute or two. I, I wonder if you want to try disconnecting and reconnecting. That might fix it. Okay. Okay, I'll be right back. Can you guys hear me? You can't hear me. Okay. Nobody can hear me right now. Can you guys hear me? Okay. All right. <laughs> Fun technical problems during the middle of the presentation. Things that are easily fixed when it's not live. All right. I'll start from the top of the paragraph and just go through there. Like Yahweh before us, our covenant relationship with Yahuwah begins with baptism. That is, or joining the Husha Hamashiach. Oh, I'm worse now. Yeah, it, it's it's somehow worse. Okay. I'll Man. I'll I'll make a note of the time, <laughs> so you can cut this all out. And okay, so the question is, 
am I choppy for any of you guys? Because maybe it's my internet as well, or, or maybe not. I don't know. Okay, no. am I am I not choppy for anybody? Am I choppy for everyone or just some people? Yeah, you, I asked in the chat, and, and you're still pretty choppy, and, and every everybody's saying you're choppy. Okay, chop. To John, to my defense, John Key says I am not choppy. Oh no, he says that to Josh Lambert. No, you are good. Okay, I'm choppy, chop, chop. Okay, well I don't know how to fix this. Um, it could be my internet. Could and you, you switched to your phone before. In this case, have you tried yeah. that? Um, like you were, you were fine until probably about two or three paragraphs ago, and then it just got. It would just be like robotty. So, the FBI is definitely messing with the signal. Oh, yeah. Last time, me... last time this happened, you were going over something very important, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh, this is <laughs> this is not good." All right, let's see if I can hop onto another hot spot here, and that might make it better. Okay, do I sound any better right now? Oh, that's clear. Okay, I'm clear again. All right. So if I will uh, have to edit out this mess in here when we put it on YouTube, I'm going to start again at the uh, Romans 6.4. We'll just start from the top, Romans 6.4. Perfect. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that likes as Mashiach was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, Romans 6.4. Like Yasherah before us, our covenant relationship with Yahuwah begins with baptism. That is, our joining Yahusha HaMashiach in his death. The domino effect couldn't be any more obvious. Yahusha did not remain dead. Therefore, in like manner, our union with the high priest in death will also result in resurrection. You will once again want to take note of Yasherah's crossing of the Red Sea. Nothing that transpired resulted by their own power. Though they chose to take part in the mikvah ceremony, their salvation derived from Yahusha alone. Also, like the Passover event, the death allegory is apparent in that the armies of Mitzrayim died whereas Gasherel crossed over and was resurrected on the other end. Such is the fate of everyone who wars against the Most High. The act of baptism is placing our fullest confidence in the perfect works of Mashiach, thereby awaiting a resurrection from the dead having already been buried with him. The instructions afterwards are simple and straightforward. We also should walk in newness of life through a daily regimen of turning away from sin, that is, transgressing the Torah. The temptation is to say that Yahushua lived the Torah perfectly so that we don't have to. No, that's not what Paul is claiming at all. Keep reading. He says, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Whose life? Yahushua's life. We are invited to walk as Yahushua walked, according to the Torah. Yashua was given the exact same invite, but we know Yahuwah's character was an affront to many of them, and rebellion abounded. At present, dipping in water isn't just a one-time affair. If we're doing it right, then it's a spiritual ceremony, a continual cleansing of the soul, a reminder that we have crossed over. Sure, the Red Sea was a one-time event just as assuredly as Yahushua's death, burial, and resurrection was a one-time event. But one thing repentance is not is a one-time event. The newness of life is characterized by a daily decision process 
whereas we ch uh, choose to line ourselves up with our Father's commands and guard them. Verse 5 of Romans. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Starting with the beginning of chapter 6, it seems apparent, certainly by this point, that Paul's entire focus has changed. After investing a great amount of papyrus and ink, I'm assuming he wrote on papyrus, maybe it was a, a, a college rule paper, I don't know, uh, of outlining his idea on how Elohim declares a sinner righteous, Paul now goes on to demonstrate that any such declaration by the believer will result in a transfixed moral reality. The ultimate purpose of Yahushua's sacrifice is here revealed. Messiah did not live a life perfectly aligned with the Torah so that we wouldn't have to. No, he saved us from our transgressions so that we, being declared righteous and therefore gifted with the Ruach HaKadosh, could be empowered to follow his example and begin living it. The person who claims they do not need to conform to the face of Torah, but finding it too anthropological or impractical or uninteresting, really fill in the blank, but are simply declared righteous as if they had already conformed, are twisting scripture to their own destruction. In reality, a person who thinks righteously will begin to behave righteously. And I think I talk, I'll talk more about that next week. Nearly every translation that I can find employs the word united rather than planted in verse 5. My first thought when reading the translation difference was to envision a promised union with Messiah in heaven once we also are resurrected. That would most certainly complement the idea that a person simply needs to be declared righteous without being expected to act righteous. Well, I checked the Greek, and that's not at all what it's saying. The word for united is uh, Pai toy, toy, whatever. You can look at that there. I'm mispronouncing it. And his best phrase exactly as it is written here, planted together. Paul seems to have the idea of grafting on his mind. I put grating there. He's not grating cheese. He's grafting. A better picture would then involve two seeds sprouting out of the grave together and adjoining as one. Paul is saying it is only natural that the person who died with Messiah will likewise sprout afterwards in the likeness of him. If not, then we must ask whether or not the person was truly dead and planted to begin with. And we read in 2 Corinthians along these lines, Now then, we are ambassadors for Mashiach. As though Elohim did beseech you by us, we pray you in Mashiach's dead, be ye reconciled to Elohim. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of Elohim in him. Similar sentiments can be found in 2 Corinthians. As you can see, Paul is once again stating that we can be declared righteous by Elohim, a familiar theme well trodden upon already in Romans. That is only possible because our high priest who knew no sin became sin for us. But then notice how we are expected to be ambassadors for Mashiach. Paul insists the time is now, telling us the job title is not indicating some future hour. I will ask you how one is capable of being an ambassador for Mashiach now if we do not at the very least attempt to walk as he walked, to reject the very tenets of the way, the truth, and the life, all of which denote the Torah, that same someone would certainly be renouncing their claim to ambassador status. 
There is nowhere that I can find in the full breadth of scripture which would otherwise assure us that breaking Elohim's commands is Yahusha's will for us, being his ambassador and all. We read in 1 John, He that says, I know him, and guards not his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso guards his word, in him truly is the love of Elohim perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. 1 John 2, 4-6. The idea of being planted together with Mashiach in the mikvah and then sprouting afterwards into the image of his resurrection is once again detailed in the passage before us, particularly when describing the sort of person who abides in him. Yochanan has a way of doing that, painting his imagery in black and white strokes. It couldn't be any more straightforward. He that says he abides in him ought himself also walk even as he walked. Confused as to the matter of Messiah's stride and strut? Don't be. Yochanan has already told us how Yahushua walked a verse or two beforehand. He guarded Elohim's commands. Many will argue these are different commands than those given to us in the Torah. Well then, the truth is not in that person then, seeing as how the Torah is the truth. More pointedly, the Father is clearly not that person's end goal because the Father has only given us one set of instructions. We went over that weeks ago in Romans, the Torah, and Yahushua told us that he alone was the only access to the Father. How anyone can argue against and ultimately confuse such clear instructions only seems to validate what Scripture claims in Yirmiyahu 79, that would be Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitful above all else, which also just so happens to lead us into Paul's next point. And with that, I'm going to stop it right there. That's as far as we're going to go this week. Uh, dividing the chapter, I guess I did the first third. Next week, I'll do the last two thirds. Uh, hopefully, everyone enjoyed that. I wanted to go into a lot more detail on the mikvah and uh, how Judaism interprets it. I, I find that really fascinating. We think that's such a Christian concept, but in Judaism, they they baptize too. They don't. They, I guess they don't call it baptism. They call it the mikvah or the the dipping the washing in water uh but um yeah that's it for the tonight on romans chapter six and i enjoyed that i enjoyed researching that some of you may recognize some of the content in there if you were at our baptismal events a year ago and that's the last time no i, I take that back rob michael and i met in, in missouri but uh uh, Michael, who's about to do the, the Genesis Targum with me, and Rob and I, we hosted a, a baptismal event down in Florida. There was a few of you attending tonight who were there, and um, it was just a fun event, and I read a lot of those same notes about baptism there. So before we move on to the Genesis Targum, does anybody have any thoughts on anything that was read or touched upon? I do. Do you, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, when, you know, the parable about the wedding garment, you know, yes. Yes. So when you were reading Exodus 19 and it's about, you know, getting cleansed and being dipped, let them wash their clothes. It just made me think, that that's how you get on your wedding garment. 
Is that right or is that wrong? I don't know. That, that's a that's a phenomenal thought, and um, I need to take notes on that myself and uh, perhaps even include that. That's really good. Okay, and then you also were talking about the book of the Order of the Ancients, and I just want to encourage everybody to read that book. It just makes you want to live a real righteous, pure life. For me, anyway, really, I thank you, Noel, for this teaching. Thank you. Yeah, Nikki, when you started saying that, and you were, I was like, oh, she's going to say, I highly encourage everyone not to read that book. But then you you came out saying we, we should read that book. Um, and when you read the book of the Order of the Ancients, and, you know, I've decided, you know, I started out in Romans kind of trying to just keep the canon. I'm like, I can't do it anymore, guys. I tried. I tried for like four or five chapters. And I'm like, I'm just going to put in all these extra canonical reads. and the 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 book of the order of the ancients as nikki was saying when you read that like like you see that these people were serious like you don't just show up and just and live a life of transgression like you, you if you want to enter these communities uh, they weren't putting up with it you're gone like the, that's the way torah was designed that you know when they live in the land if they if they allowed people to uh just live in their transgressions uh, it's it you know they they start being tolerant of it. The, it's just the next generation is going to slip further. The tolerance will continue, and then the next generation until they're just wicked people. And um, they were supposed to remove people from the land who were unrepentant. Um, and so you see that with the Order of the Ancients, where they're like, you want to enter our community, you get you're gonna you know act in a way that is loving towards Yahuwah. We're not going to put up with anything. Can you tell us a little more about that book, uh, what it's about? I've never heard of that one, and uh, I'm very interested. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of where, if I actually have it published in any of my books yet, in any of my collections, I know that, okay, yeah, there's one from Zen Garcia, there's Sacred Word Publishing, he has the book of the Order of the Ancients, so you can read that there. Uh, it's, it's a part of, it's considered part of Michelzedek literature. And there's actually, I'm going to be quoting a lot tonight in the Genesis Targum on the writings of Abraham. And those two books complement each other very well. It's, they're both Meshulzadek literature. They have some interesting phrases that are similar. Um, and um, it's, it's kind of like, it's very similar to the book, to the Didache. Now, the Didache is a book that turns some people off because it, um, uh, some people will say it has a lot of leaven in it. Uh, but the Didache was another book that was written for early Christians that uh, they, if you were to enter a congregation, you have to obey these rules. Um, if you don't obey these rules, you're out. Like, like the Didache would be like, um, uh, if there are two people in the congregation and they're having a out, they're having a fight, uh, that's leaven right there. It's going to grow. It's going to spread. You are to have excommunicate both of them until they can work out their problems when they're willing to, when one or the other is able to work out the problems, you bring them back. Um, and so the, these these communities were very very strict about like we're we're not putting up with um, you know this this uh, disrespect and rebellion and all this kind of stuff. You it, you exhibit any of that, you're gone. Um, and um, it seems that the the book of Michelle Zedek was also kind of more communal, uh, or the book of the Order of the Ancients. Um, where they would go in and they would live on this uh, homestead together and kind of all their possessions would be each other. It's kind of similar to you see the, to the church of Jerusalem and acts. So. 
Um, Nikki was saying that Zen's copy doesn't honor the names and that that's another one that needs edited. And Sarah E was laughing and saying, calling Rebecca, well, I've never done one that restores the names. That That's all Noel. And uh, that, that might be something you consider, Noel, is uh, doing a restoration on that one. I'd have to see if I, well, I, I already have. I'd have to see if I actually have it in a published form. Um, because I have like four or five books out now on different, uh, I'm categorizing them. Like I'm doing the books of Adam and Eve and doing the books of uh, Pontius Pilate and, you know, the, 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 um, the, uh, the birth, like the birth of Messiah, the, um, you know, so on and so forth. So um, I'm not sure if I, I do have one out on the, the patriarchs, but I don't think I've included that one in there. So yeah, I'll have to look into that. Anyways, uh, any other thoughts on anything else that was read in Romans? Yeah. You guys couple... Go ahead, Josh. I had one. It, it's super quick, but it just um, like, it's right from the beginning. Like, <laughs> Like the first verse says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin uh, that grace may abound? And I, 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 I could swear that I've heard this being preached and there's no question mark. Like they're like, shall we like, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And it's just like, it's like, that's it. They leave it there. They don't even go to the next one, which literally starts with like a never with like an exclamation mark. I just thought that, <laughs> that was brilliant. Because the amount of times that I hear Christians or pastors like cherry picking and like literally, like literally, if someone had just read one word further, the whole thing, the whole like preaching is undermined. So I, I just I just thought that was great. You guys know that I've been on both sides of the fence. In fact, almost every single one of you have now seen me on both sides of the fence. And it's in the argument of should Paul even be in scripture or not? Should he be tossed out to the curb or what? And I have really, it has been a job of wrestling, like uh, wrestling with Paul and trying to really figure out what he's saying here. And one thing I'm picking up in his language in Romans is that he, we'll get to this next week, he totally sees it and gets it that this idea of grace is leading many people to the idea that they can live in sin. Uh, that was a problem even then. When he writes the letter of Romans, he is trying to admonish them and say, uh, no, like if you have received grace, um, he basically, he gives the picture, there's two things that are going to happen. He's been, he's been laying this down. He, he said in Romans chapter five that where the Torah is, sin increases. Now, many Christians will take that and say, see, see, that's why the Torah is evil. It was a curse. It's so good it's done with because of sin increases. And it's like, if you're actually listening to yourself right now, you are rebelling against the Torah right now. Right this very moment, you're rebelling against it. Your sin is increasing. The idea is, is that when mankind is confronted with the Torah, when they went to Mount Sinai, they, they rebelled. I mean, look at Korah's rebellion. And it's all through. They just kept rebelling and rebelling. And Yehu had to keep offing people, destroying them. And he's finally like, "That's I'm going to get rid of all these people. They're all rebels. And it, it wasn't the Torah's problem. It was their problem. Because they looked into uh, the Torah and they saw the 
face of the Most High. They saw his character and they didn't like what they saw. And that is the ultimate truth, guys. When people rebel against the Torah, about against his instructions to righteousness, what they're ultimately doing is they all claim they want to get to the Father in heaven, but they don't like who he is. They want an idle version of him. So this sin increases. So what happens is, is Paul is trying to make the argument saying there is that Yahuwah is not your employer. Okay, that this is this is going to come in into next week in chapter six. He's not your employer because if he was, then there is nothing you could do to to actually make up for the sin you've done. There's nothing. Like there's a consequence to your sin and it's death. And so this is the grace that he gives to you through your high priest, through the role, the administration of your high priest, Yahushua HaMashiach. He has done it for you, just as the high priest would for Israel every year. But now he has done it once and for all. And so you need to believe when, when he says believe in Jesus, guys, that's what he's talking about. You need to believe that your high priest has done it the same way that they all had to have belief. They had to have faith in their high priest. Yahushua's our high priest. We believe in him. But the problem is, is that human nature goes in such a way that you tell them they have grace. They're like, all right, you know, I can, <laughs> I can sin now. And, and I, I, I'm reading Paul now, I'm believing that he was appalled by that. He was like, he was reeling at that. And you will see later on where he's like, no, if you have been truly baptized, if you have received grace, if you have truly been imputed with righteousness, uh, that's the only way for the rule of Kaddish to come upon you if you've been imputed with righteousness, because the, 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 the rule of Kaddish is not going to come on an unrighteous person. Um, then you will be acting righteously. Uh, and how do you act righteously? And I, I'm going to talk about this next week. A person who I, I've been around congregations where there really are anti-sin. They they are they they, they don't want to sin. But that to to have an attitude where you don't want to sin and you try so hard not to sin, that's a losing attitude. That's a that's an attitude for losers. Why? Because if you're just concentrating on the sin that you don't want to do, you're going to keep doing it. You can't you can't help it because there's nothing filling that void. In order to not sin, you have to think righteously. You have to think about the Most High. You have to want to do His commands. This is why the the feasts are so important. We're come, some of I think uh, I think uh, some of the Lunar Sabbath people already kept the they're in the middle of the feast now. Um, it's coming up really quickly for us, the, the fall feast. You start doing the fall feast. You start reflecting on the Most High, and all of a sudden you start conforming to these righteous thoughts guys that's how we do it um there's it, you can't you can't just say we're given grace and i'm going to try hard not to sin now it's like no if you are imputed with righteousness you better start thinking righteously you start better start acting righteously so all right um and um torah girl has an interesting point here she says nowhere in scripture does it, it say someone has to baptize you um and I, I think that, that that's a, a good point. Now, I think it's important that everyone seek out someone to baptize them. There are some people in the room right now that have asked me to baptize them, and because of our distance or whatever, it hasn't happened. Okay, I, 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 I get it. It's hard to find someone. We are so scattered. It's hard to find someone who could baptize you who, is, who has the same convictions as you do. Uh, so what she has said, uh, I agree with. Dip yourself. 
get in the water, just like get in the water, find some water, dip yourself, repent of your sins, and pray to the Most High and say, In the name of the Father, uh, Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim Yashua, in the name of his son, Yahushua Hamashiach, in the name of the, in the Ruach HaKadesh, you know, I repent of my sins, you know, cleanse me of my sins, baptize yourself. And this is what I say is an ongoing thing. When I take a shower, um, um, I think, you know, the ladies probably take baths more. Um, you know, I, I, I will confess I have taken an occasional bath. I'm not a bubble bath guy, but, you know, I like to get in the shower. Uh, I, I use that time to reflect on, on impurities. Um, and uh, I, I see it more as a, um, a ritual. Like when I have um, intercourse with my wife, uh, we want to cleanse ourselves afterwards. And, you know, get up in the morning and make sure I wash myself and get clean. And um, because we are priests in the kingdom, right? We want to act like priests. And, and uh, so this is just a ongoing, this, this um, cleansing our, our flesh, but also our, our spirit and our soul uh, to be uh, closer to Yahuwah, to walk with him. And that's what we want. All right. I've rambled enough. Does anyone else have anything else on Romans before we move on? Um, yeah, I had something on um, when you talked about the rock, following them around. Um, I have never heard that before, which I kind of really fascinated me, but I lost it on the page when I was trying to follow you along. Uh, which scripture was that in? And then what is your thoughts on where the Caldwells talk about, you know, finding the rock in Mount Sinai, you know, with the whole Ron Wyatt stuff kind of stuff. So I was just kind of thinking um, along that line and what your thoughts were on that. Um, did I lose him? Oh, sorry. I'm right here. I'm right here. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay. So I, I'm I'm trying to find where that passage is. And I, I was, I confess I was talking. I forgot to turn my microphone back on. And I, 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 I took my document down, Romans, so I don't have it in front of me anymore. Uh, maybe someone could look it up. I think it's first. It's okay. I can, I can continue to look. It's all right. I just thought uh, I'd never well, heard that before. And I thought it was really just fascinating me when you'd said that. So I was just going to go back and just reread it. And, and well, that. well, I'll give you some context on what I was talking about. A couple of weeks ago, we went, I went over my presentation on the Stone of Scone, and you were there for that. And in there, I talked about how I'd never seen it before. and uh, but. Paul does talk about the um, the stone that followed them around in the wilderness, and that it was it was Messiah. So there was a stone that was following around. It was not uh, set in place. I believe this is the stone that Moses struck. Uh, imagine if he were to go and strike the Ark of the Covenant out of his rage. That would be. I I, I brought up why was Moshe not allowed to enter the promise that he struck a rock. It wasn't just that he misinterpreted Yahuwah's instructions or disobeyed his instructions, because I'm sure Moses ascended his life. It was the fact that it was um, total uh, just uh, contempt in that moment uh, towards the Most High, towards his role, even towards all the kings that would spring up in the earth of the future generations. And Yahuwah is like, you're done, dude. You're not entering the land because of this thing. Uh, and I th and I think that this is the rock that uh, Paul talks about that followed the Miranda was Messiah. Um, so, so yeah, so there is a huge giant rock you can go to in Saudi Arabia. Um, that is uh, that you can see that they say it was split. Maybe that is the rock. I don't know, but 
Um, Paul, by the way, I came up with the theory. Well, I didn't come up with the theory. I, uh, as many people's theory that the stone of scone follow him through the wilderness. I didn't actually see that Paul wrote that until afterwards. I was like, wow, that actually fits in really nice. So, um, anyways, I was just going to tell you, Noel, that there is, uh, absolute confirmation of that in legends of the Jews. I, I was trying to find it right now and I, I can't find it because my thing's being slow, but, uh, in legends of the Jews, it talks about an actual rock that was a sieve like rock and that it did follow them around. And it was, it was a, they called it a well, uh, and, and it literally kept them in water. That's how they, they had water out in the desert. Um, now, whether that's the same one that Moses struck or not, I don't, I don't know, but um, it is definitely talked about in Legends of the Jews. Okay, uh, <laughs> I love that. You know, Rebecca is editing the Legends of the Jews right now. We're going back to the the, the source text, and we're like, we're you know, uh, modernizing them and or bringing them on, you know, lifting them onto the page. And uh, so every week she has some comment on Legends of the Jews. I absolutely love it, and that re reminds us of what Yahusha said that he is, you know, the water of life. So. Uh, he was referring to the wilderness journeys and that he was that water. That's really exciting to think about. All right. With that, I'm going to be, I think it's time to move on. And so we will be closing this. Um, thank you for all the comments. Those were all helpful. And um, everyone, and hopefully you did enjoy that. And I put a, I put a lot of effort into uh, Romans. And I know that people are probably like, oh, he's doing Romans again. Like I grew up my whole life in church hearing Romans every month. Why did we have to do this again? And I, I, I really feel like I need to get this under my belt. And But also just speak to Romans from a perspective that hardly anyone has ever heard, and that is the Torah. Um, I'm not trying to get into all this deep theology on all these other uh, denominational doctrines. I'm just trying to take you guys through and, sh uh, through and show you verse by verse that Paul held the Torah to be the highest moral standard. And the if we are to become righteous, it is only to conform to that. Mm -hmm.